All right, everyone. Um, in Tishabab, we don't say good morning, so just uh, welcome to this morning's presentation, which will take us hopefully until Chatzot, until midday, which time the uh, the restrictions of the day become a lot less severe. We move on, as you can see, we're sitting on a lower chair at the moment. Uh, at midday, we can start sitting on proper chairs. We can start greeting one another. The, the mood lifts a bit. Um, interestingly enough, the reason the mood lifts a bit is because it's that point that the temple was set on fire. And even though that might seem like something which would be uh, a more severe and more intense element of the morning, our rabbis teach us that the fact that when Hashem put the fire on the temple was a sign that the people himself, that the people would be spared. So that the fire or Hashem's anger was on the, the eight for heaven, on the rocks and the wood of the Beit HaMikdash, but the people themselves would always survive. And that's why it becomes a lot less of a, a part of mourning is because we know as a people we will be able to endure even though the temple itself wouldn't. Um, this, mor- this morning what I wanted to share with you is a combination of an idea that I, I developed as well as something I heard recently by Rab Amnon Bazak, who's one of the Rabbinim in the Gush. And it's going to take us a little bit uh, of uh, backwards into the Tanakh to understand the first real destruction. Because albeit that we... Um, we Historically, we have the idea that the temple, the origins of the destruction of the temple was when the, when the 12 spies came back from Israel and 10 of them gave a negative report. And everyone started crying. So Hashem said, according to the Medrash, You cried for nothing. I'll give you something to cry for generations. And that became the origins of uh, Tishvav as the day of mourning. But the first actual destruction, as far as the sanctuary goes, is the Mishkan Shiloh. We see this, uh, which we'll read shortly, the story itself. But we actually see it when uh, Yaakov, uh, when Binyamin and Yosef meet, when Joseph and Benjamin meet after not seeing each other for 20 odd years. They embrace each other and says, Joseph cried on Benjamin's necks and Benjamin jo- cried onto Joseph's necks. So they say, what was crying into the necks? So they say that the necks referring to the fact that two temples in the tribe of Benjamin that were destroyed and Joseph... Uh, and Benjamin cried on the neck of Joseph, which were relating to Mishkan Shiloh, the tabernacle in Shiloh, that was in the in the territory of Ephraim, the territory of Joseph. Okay, so to just take us a little bit of history as we go from leaving the Chumash into the into the uh, into the into the Tanakh, into the Nevi'im. So we enter Eretz Yisrael. Moshe passes away. Yeshua takes over. Joshua takes over. And for the next fourteen years. There's a, a process of conquering the land and then distributing and, and uh, settling the land where the tribes go into all the different uh, areas that they'll settle. Certain areas within the land were never settled. Most notably, Jerusalem wasn't conquered till much, much later in Sefer Shmuel, in the book of Shmuel. We don't have... So, so what happens is the Mishkan, as it moves over during those 14 years, it's uh, in a place called Gilgal. But eventually it moves to a place called Shiloh. Shiloh is about, I think it's about 30 kilometers north of Jerusalem. It is a settlement now. You could go there once upon a time. It's, uh, a lot of Australians used to go send it when they used to do their gap year. They used to spend it in Shiloh. And uh, you can go over, t- over there now. And Shiloh is where the, the Mishkan was set up. Now where is the Mishkan as it wandered through the wilderness was very much a, uh, a very temporary place. Uh, uh, structure was held up by pillar, like temporary poles and pillars and t- curtains. When it got to, to Shiloh, 
they actually made it into a more permanent structure. They gave it walls and the like, and even though it used a lot of the the materials that were used from the, the, the tabernacle, it now, Mishkan Shiloh, become more of a permanent presence. Now, if you were to go to Shiloh today, they have rebuilt the, the community shul, is built like Mishkan Shiloh, it's supposed to look, and there's archaeological uh, diggings that are done around there that you can go and see what uh, remains behind of Shiloh. Now, the story goes as follows. Post the Sefer Yeshua, when we get into the book of Shmuel, now book of Shmuel might be familiar that we started really by the beginning of a reading of uh, on Rosh Hashanah. First day Rosh Hashanah, we read of Hana, and Hana is barren, and she goes to the Mishkan, she goes to uh, she goes to Shiloh to pray that she should have a child, and Eli, who's the Kohen Gadol, so there's this, you know, he thinks she's drunk and he says, get away from you, get away, you shouldn't be drunk yet. And she says, no, I'm drunk, I'm, I'm just heart sore. And she prays, and that's the Haftorah for, for first day Rosh Hashanah. What's happening in, Mishka, in Shiloh at the time is Eli is the Kohen Gadol. And Eli has two sons, Chofni and Pinchas. Now, Chofni and Pinchas are not really seen as fitting heirs to, uh, to Eli. And what happens is that child that Hannah davens for, and this is what we read on Rosh Hashanah, she davens for the child and she has the child, she calls him Shmuel, Samuel, and she promises to dedicate Shmuel to, uh, to, the, to the Beit HaMikdash, that he will serve in the Beit HaMikdash. And that's exactly what happens. Shmuel is at a very young age, once he's weaned, he's taken over, and he's raised by Eli um, in the Mishkan to, in time, you know, operate over there. At some point in his upbringing, I remember as a child, we, um, I went to a public school, but it was a very Christian public school, so we learned all the Bible stories. So I remember the, one of the stories of Shmuel, that, uh, the way that it was told to us, and it's not too different from the actual text, is Shmuel was lying in bed one night and he hears a voice saying, Shmuel, Shmuel, he runs up to Eli and he goes to Eli and says, you called me? And Eli says, I didn't call you. He goes, he says, go back to bed. Happens again the second time, the third time, and Eli says to him, you know what? It's Hashem speaking to you. Just say, I hear Hashem, what do you have to say? To which Shmuel does, and Hashem comes and tells him that, that Eli's children, Chofni and Pinchas, are, are not fit to take over, and they are all going to be lost, that he is going to lose Chofni and Pinchas on the day that he dies. And that's the story that Shmuel, and Shmuel sort of tells Eli, and Eli sort of accepts the, um, accepts the, the decree. Okay, that's scene one. Seem to just with a little bit of background, is when um, if you when Moshe goes up Mount Sinai, um, one of the things he he brings down is the two tablets, and he also what happens is he builds an ark. Now there are two arks. There's the ark of the covenant, which is the one that you might be familiar with, the one of gold that has the the angels on top of it. But there was apparently another wooden ark, and that wooden ark is where the shivrei luchot, the broken tablets were kept and apparently this ark was occasionally taken out to battle now Rashi mentions that in the Chumash and Pasha at uh, Kitisa but also where we see this take place is in that first major battle that the Israelites wage when they get into the land of Israel and that's within the battle of Jericho as they're walking around what happens is they blow the shofas but they also have the Aron with them so that's a little bit of the background so now I'm going to take you I'm going to share some screens here we're going to go into, there we go. Okay. 
We are now, this is the fifth chapter of uh, Sefer Shmuel. I'll read it through as we go. And it's going to tell us about the, what eventually leads to the destruction of uh, the Mishkan. Oh, sorry, I'm the wrong specimen. Just gave it away there. Okay. And Shmuel, the no, it was known that Shmuel was a prophet. It went out all of his... The Israelites went out to wage war against the Philistines. So you've got the Philistines on one side, you've got the Israelites on the other. Apologies, let me just get rid of that. The war took place. And the Israelites were, were, were slain, were smitten. The Philistines won the war, the battle. Forty thousand Israelites perished in war. When we go through Tanakh, it often it's hard to appreciate. You know, we often think that when we hear of of disaster in modern day warfare, and we lose soldiers, and every soldier is precious. But you see here what's happening is forty thousand on one day of battle were were decimated. So we're in the land of Israel. We've got. We've got the Mishkan. We've got, uh, you know, this is the Holy Land. The Philistines are invaders. They are not supposed to be there. We go out war and, and we lose the war. So what happens? So all the elders and everyone starts saying, why is it, how could it possibly be that the Philistines beat us? It's Aaron Brit Hashem. You know what we need to do? We need to go to Shiloh. We need to get the Brit Hashem. The, the covenant, the Aaron Brit Hashem. So not the wooden box, but the Aaron Brit Hashem. The golden box with the ta- the second set of tablets, with the manna, with the Aaron staff, with the with the Krugim, with the cherubs. We need to take the Avobi Kirbenu and bring it into our midst. And it will protect us, it will uh, uh, save us, deliver us from the hands of our enemy. So they sent messengers to Shiloh, and they went and took the Aaron with the, with the cherubs on it. And who else came with it? Chofni and Pinchas, the two sons of Eli, Chofni and Pinchas. They all came together. This is what's going to happen. We've lost the battle. We are, you know what we are missing? We are missing the mission. We are missing the Aaron. Go and go get the Aaron. So they go to the Aaron. They say, Chofni and Pinchas, we need the Aaron. They said, fantastic. Let's go. They take the Aaron. And when the Aaron came, now imagine, the Israelites at this point in time, still, so the first day of battle is over. The Israelite camp is, is licking its wounds. The Philistine camp is celebrating. And what happens? There's this ruckus. There's this ruckus. It, it, the world started shaking. They heard this huge roar as the Aaron comes into the camp of Israel. It's unbelievable. And the Philistines heard this. They said, what on earth is going on over there? They've just been smites by 40,000 troops they've lost. And they, they sound exuberant. And they knew that it must be that the Aaron had arrived in the camp. And they got incredibly frightened, the Philistines. Because they said, that God, quote unquote, has come to the camp. What are we going to do? 
So the Philistines, it's like the, the Israelites have brought their secret weapon. We beat them yesterday, hey, but they have got their secret weapon. What's going to be? Who's going to beat? Who's going to help us? You know, they brought in the, the big guns. Who have we got? There's the God who, who smote Egypt with all the plagues and throughout the wilderness. So apparently the, the commander said, No, come guys. Come, stand up for us. Lest if you don't stand up and fight, you might land up being slaves. Like we made them slaves to us in the past, we will become their slaves. It's time to stand up, to be men and to fight. Sorry, that offends anyone. Stand up, be men and go and fight. It seems at this point in time, at least in the mind of the, the Philistines, it's an unfair fight. They've brought in atomic weapons and how are we going to win? So it says, what happened? They routed them again. And all the Israelites flew home to their tents. And another 30,000 soldiers fell. And the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant and killed the two sons of Eli, Pinchas, and Chofni. So, so, so you've got this, this, this. Now, according to the commentaries, this is going to lead to the destruction of the of the of Shiloh itself. But at this point in time, Eli is still in Shiloh. Chofni and Pinchas have been murdered on the battlefield and the ark is gone. It's, it's the, the idea of the ark being stolen, you know, it's not only the fact that we lost the battle, but the morale that has just happened to B'nai Israel. And a, a, a young man from the tribe of Benjamin ran away from the war, from the battle, and he came to Shiloh. And he came and his clothes were ripped. And he had soil and earth on his head as a sign of mourning. And Eli was sitting on a chair. Waiting. He was very scared. Because of the ark of God. And the man came into the city and spread the news and a whole bitter cry fell on the people. And Eli heard the terrible cry. He says, what's this terrible cry I'm hearing? Eli himself is 98 years. And he was says, fixed in a blind state. So the man asked the guy from says, I've just come from the battlefront. So, so Eli's like, what's, tell me what happened. He answered, says, We've been chased away from the, by the Plishtim. And the people have been decimated. And your two sons have been murdered, have been killed. And the ark of Hashem has been taken. So, fourth, the, the, there's been a terrible uh, slaughter on the battlefield. Your two sons have been killed and the ark has been taken. So it says, what well, carries on, 
And when he mentioned that uh, that the ark had been taken, the acharonit, he fell backwards from his chair. He broke his neck. He's again and Eli dies. So it's when he hears that the ark of the covenant has been broken, has been stolen, that tips him. He's shocked by the death in the battle. He's shocked even more by his own sons. But when the ark of the covenant has been taken, that that's the final blow, and he falls off the chair and he and he dies. Now at this point in time, we see the Kalatosha Eshet Pinchas. So this is Eli's daughter-in-law, so Pinchas's wife. She was uh, she was Harala Ledet. She was about to give birth. And she heard about that the ark was taken and that her husband was dead. And she caused her son, you know, he covered. That is that gone. Says she never. Uh, she calls. Says she names some ichavod. Ichavod. So kavod is honor. Ichavod means without honor, meaning the glorious departure from Israel, referring to the capture of the ark and to the death of her father-in-law and her husband. The glory. The tome gala kavod Israel Gone is the glory from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So the story as it's portrayed over there is, is this disastrous. The first and according to Chazal, that is the destruction of the Mishkan. And it is at that from this point on, Shiloh doesn't exist anymore. But when it comes like, what did, why did this all happen? So, like, why did Hashem allow us to to lose the battle and for the ark to be taken? I mean, the the idea that the ark could be taken is is such an anathema that this is you know the closest thing we have to a physical embodiment of Hashem. to think of such a thing, but. We've got the that that's when Hashem spoke to Moshe. He spoke between the between the wings of the angels. That's a uh, kuvim. That's how Hashem spoke to us. That this was really this this magnificent um, centerpiece of the Mishkan. So much so that when you go into shul today, the centerpiece of the shul is the is the Aron, named after the Aron Kodesh, the centerpiece of the temple. So when when you ask people where do you face when you daven, so people say, oh, you face uh, face Israel. So that's partially true. So when you're outside of Israel, you face Israel. When you're in Israel, you face Jerusalem. When you're in Jerusalem, you face Har Habayit. You face the Temple Mount. And when you're at Har Habayit, you face the Kodesh HaKodoshim, the Holy of Holies. What was in the Holy of Holies? Only one thing. The Aaron Brit Hashem. That was the only thing in there. It's the holiest thing in Judaism. And it was taken by the Plishtim. And, and there's this terrible, um, terrible uh, destruction of Mishkan Shil. Let's pause it there for a second. Yesterday, um, so we, we've been over since the, the three weeks started. So from Yudzaim Tammuz until uh, Tishvab until today, it's called Bena Mitzarim, which is a verse, it's, I think it's the third verse of Migilat Echa, which talks about this period of time where we grieve. And each of the Haftarot from uh, Pashat, usually Pashat Pinchas, Matot Maaseh, and, and Dvarim, or what called Shalosha de Peronuta, the three, three Haftarot that deal with um, affliction, deal with the suffering. And it's, it's three Haftarot that come out of the prophets where the prophets are lamenting and complaining about the, the upcoming destruction of the temple, of what is going to be. Now, the idea that the temple is going to be destroyed is something that 
albeit in hindsight seems obvious, as, as hindsight is twenty twenty in all cases. But the reality at the time is when the prophets were around, there were other prophets prophesizing that this could never happen. For example, in, uh, in, in Sefer Yirmiyahu, we, we read about the fact that Jeremiah, who from his, from his earliest days is saying that is coming, the Persians are coming, they're going to destroy the temple. And there were other prophets at multiple points in time throughout that history that were saying, Heichel Hashem, Heichel Hashem, Heichel Hashem, that the temple of Hashem will never be destroyed, it will never be destroyed. And the people in the street, um, who would you want to listen to? Someone who says that the temple will never be destroyed. Or someone says that the temple is going to be destroyed. So no one listened to Yemiel. But if we look to now, I'm going to share my screen again. Apologies. Um, pardon. Okay. So this is the Haftorah from yesterday. Now it's a Haftorah that you should appreciate. comes at a few times in the Chumash. No, not this, but the same idea. So this was, so it says, Chazaya Shaya Ben Amos, that's how it starts, who prophesies concerning Jerusalem, Judah and Jerusalem in the reigns of Uziah. O sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children, that forsaken the Lord, spurned the Holy One of Israel, turned their backs on Him. Key, what need have I of all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm sated with burnt offerings of rams, and sweat of fatlings and blood bulls. I have no delight in lambs and he goats. That you come to appear before me. Who asked that of you? Trample my courts. No more bringing oblations is futile. Incense is, incense is offensive to me. New moons and Sabbath proclaiming solemnities. Assemblies with iniquity. I cannot about your new moons, your fixed season, form with loathing. They become a burden to me. I cannot enjoy that. So Yeshaya, at the beginning of Yeshaya, he starts saying the fact that I don't want the korbanot. Like, you, you, all you do, you're bringing korbanot, korban after korban, all the different, and he goes through a whole list, the ones you bring on Rosh Chodesh, the ones you bring on Shabbat, the, the rams, the lambs, the goats, on anything you do, it says that, it says they fill me with loathing, they disgust me. So Hashem, in Sefer Vayikra, comes and commands us to bring korbanot, and yeah, in Sefer, in, in, in Sefer Yeshaya, which we read yesterday, Hashem's come and do the opposite. I don't want these korbanot. I don't want these uh, sacrifices. How, how on earth, you know, is it, what's going on? What's going wrong here? In fact, one of the fascinating things, if you read through the haftarot that deal with um, the, the, the parashat, parashat that deal with uh, the, bring of the uh, building and the creation of the Mishkan. So parashat truma titzave, all of those that talk about Mishkan, if you go read the Haftarot, so much of them are about how insignificant the Beit HaMikdash is. And it's like quite a fascinating story. That, so in, in Sefer Vayikra, when you start offering the sacrifices, and the Prophet comes and says, I, I, says Hashem, I never commanded sacrifices to the Avot, to Avram Yitzhak Yaakov. They, I never told them they had to bring sacrifices. But it was never something I ever wanted. And here again, we see this idea that sacrifices or something that undesirable is something that comes at the beginning of third way. We said again, Hoshea says, for I desire goodness, not sacrifice, obedience to God, rather than burnt offerings. I, I don't want the sacrifices. And finally, I loathe, I spurn you, this is from Amos, spurn your festivals, I'm not appeased by your solemn assemblies. If you offer me burnt offerings, or your meal offerings, I will not accept them, I will not pay heed to your gifts of fatlings, Sweet me the sound of your hymns and let me not hear the sound of your flutes. I don't want your korbanot. 
So we have, on the one hand, we're sitting today, we're commemorating and mourning the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, and yet, when you read through the Prophets, it seems the thing that we're longing for is something that was very undesirable. That, that how did, isn't the whole idea of having the Beit HaMikdash back is so that we can offer the sacrifices? I mean, what else do we need it for? We go to Yerushalayim, we have a temple so we can offer sacrifices. Now, what exactly sacrifices mean in the 21st century is unclear to me. Um, can you go outside, please? Sorry, I have a dog visitor. Um, how are we supposed to um, commemorate this? If, if, like, what else is the point of the temple? The temple is where we got off sacrifices. Every single thing we do, so where there's been a korban todah, thanksgiving, so appreciation for all the things we've got, that we've, uh, um, other, we've got in a bounty, we want to build a relationship with Hashem, we've done a terrible avera, first born uh, Bukhorim, a, a woman after giving birth, uh, um, uh, and Azir. That's the whole point of the Beit HaMikdash. It was, a, it was for the Avodah. That was the whole point of the Beit HaMikdash. It was divine service. Divine service was through Korbanot. It wasn't a shul. You didn't go to the Beit HaMikdash to Davin. There was no chazan and minyanim and chazar uh, tashah. It didn't exist there. That's all post-Beit HaMikdash. So here we are all mourning for the Beit HaMikdash. And the prophets are all saying, this is horrible. The Hashem doesn't want the Beit HaMikdash. So, so what exactly is going on? So you have to suggest the idea is that it's not that the, Beit, that the service in the Beit HaMikdash was not wanted, but rather the quality of the service of the Beit HaMikdash was not wanted. So just to, to and it, we'll elaborate on this shortly, but it wasn't the idea that, that temple service is a problem. It was the fact that your or our temple service was the problem. That what we were doing and what the temple service was supposed to be were completely um, out of sync with one another. So to take this um, a bit of a step to the side and we understand this idea in the concept from now, looking at it from a more of a halachic concept, we're going to be dealing with, uh, let me just uh, give a little bit of background explanation. When a person does a mitzvah, there's a, there's a dispute in the Gemara of what's called mitzvot srichot kavana. That when you do a mitzvah, do you need kavana? So what is kavana? Kavana is a basic intent, intent to do a mitzvah. So do you have to have intent to do a mitzvah or no, you don't have to have intent to do a mitzvah as long as you do the act that in and of itself is sufficient. Now, we read a couple of weeks ago in Pashat Matat Masay that there's an idea that intent matters. And the way that it's learnt over there is in, in negative, in transgressing of various. So just to give a bit of the background, um, there are times when a person can make a vow and that vow can be nullified without their knowledge. So generally speaking, if I make a vow, I say, from now on, um, I'm never going to eat chocolate. So if I eat chocolate, halakhically, it has the same status as me eating something non-kosher. Because even though the kosher, chocolate's kosher, since I made the vow, the vow is binding. I've made this bound to me. Everyone else can eat chocolate. But if I eat chocolate, then now I have to bring a korban. I have to bring a sacrifice to the temple because I transgressed my vow. That is the general rule. Now, I, if, I, if the vow is too difficult for me, I've, I've changed my mind, I've changed my heart, or I didn't quite understood, understand what it entailed, so I can nullify my vow. And that we do usually on Erev Rosh Hashanah or Kornidre. That's exactly what Kornidre is. It is this whole idea of nullifying our vows. Now, in Tanakh, and I'm just going to use the one example of a, of a child, specifically a daughter, that if a daughter makes a vow and she's a minor living at home, her father has the ability to nullify her vow. 
which means that if she comes, she says, Dad, she says, ah, oh, broccoli, I hate broccoli. I'm taking a vow never to eat broccoli. So that's all well and good. So the father says, no, no, you're going to eat broccoli. So that vow is completely nullified, completely nullified. If the father doesn't say that, and it's also in a husband-wife relationship, if the father doesn't say that, so she says, I'm taking a vow never to eat broccoli, and the father says, whatever you want, and then she eats broccoli, so then, again, like the chocolate case, she's transgressed the Torah prohibition. So there'll be for a, a minor or for a wife. So the Gemara brings a case. What about the following? A woman makes a, a vow, I'm never going to eat chocolate. Her husband hears about this. They said, did you hear about what your wife did or your daughter did? They made a vow saying they're never going to eat chocolate. So the husband says, ah, rubbish, I nullify the vow. But she doesn't hear about it. And then she, in a, in a, uh, in a, in a moment of weakness, eats a piece of chocolate. And as she eats it, she realizes she's transgressed her vow. She comes back and she comes back home and she says, I've done a terrible avera. I've eaten, a, I've transgressed my vow and now I have to bring a korban. She says, what vow was that? He says, the vow, I made a vow yesterday not to eat chocolate and today I ate chocolate. So the husband says, I nullified your vow yesterday. The vow doesn't exist. When you were eating chocolate, there wasn't a vow. So what's the halachic status of this woman? So Gomorrah says, she still has to bring an atonement offering even though she didn't eat, what she ate was permissible because the vow didn't exist. But since she didn't know that, so she has to bring, a, she has to uh, do tshuva, she has to bring a, a korban. So Rabbi Akiva, when he read this passage, he said, imagine this, a person who wants to eat treif, wants to eat chaza, and lands up eating something kosher, he has to bring a korban, he has to do tshuva, meaning he, did, he didn't do anything prohibited. He just, he wanted to do an avaira, he didn't do the avaira, but he still has to bring a korban. Imagine the person who wants to do an avaira and actually does the avaira. So that's Rabbi Akiva's statement. So that's regarding neg. So here we have a person who transgresses and has to do tshuva on an avaira, even though they didn't do an avaira. They just thought they would do it. They intended to do an avaira. They wanted to do something wrong. They didn't do something wrong. But nevertheless, since the intent was negative, so therefore it's as if they didn't do it. So what about the opposite way around? I want to do a mitzvah, but I don't do a mitzvah. So I want to give tzedakah. So I, I, I see someone who's a beggar, and I say, I'm going to give this tzedakah, and I give it to the beggar, and I have good intent, and it turns out that it was a charlatan. This person wasn't, a, wasn't really a beggar. They were a charlatan. Did I give tzedakah or not? So according to that logic, so it would seem that you have done tzedakah. Why? Because tzedakah, because your intent was there, and intent means everything. Maybe it's not the same as actually giving to the right person, but you did something positive. So that's, that seems to be. So let's go back into our, our Gemara. All right, so there's a Gemara that says as follows. Hayah Koreh B'Torah. If a person's reading from the Torah, hamikra, and so he's reading... Um, he just happens to be reading the parsha that has the Shema in it. And it happens to be 8 o'clock in the morning. It says, If he has kavana, if he has intent to, uh, to fulfill the mitzvah of Kriyat Shema, he fulfills the mitzvah. Okay? So, meaning, I'm just going through reading the Torah because it's very interesting to me. I'm reading the Shema at the time that there is to read Shema. If I have intent... To fulfill the mitzvah of reading Shema, I fulfill the mitzvah. Seemingly, so if I don't have intent, I don't. So Gomorrah continues. It says, 
See from there, you have to have intent. If you don't have intent, you don't fulfill a positive mitzvah. So it says, Ma in kivendi bo likrot. Says what? It, it says what? Do you, it says no, no. What do you mean? When it says in kivendi bo, if you had kavana, if you had intent, what does it mean? If you had intent, it says you had intent to read. So it says likrot vaha kakari. But he says, but he's reading. He said he's reading. He says ha bekol again. So it's. What the Gemara does in Unkimta, we're talking about a guy who's a software stum. He's a guy who writes mezuzahs. And he's busy checking your mezuzah. And what's the mezuzah? It's the first two paragraphs of Shema. He's checking the mezuzah. So he's going through it. And even though he's reading, he's not reading it to read it. He's reading it to check it. So he has to have Kavana. Okay? So if he has Kavana, he fulfills the mitzvah. If he doesn't have Kavana, he does not fulfill the mitzvah. So the Shulchan Aruch Paskins, it says, Some people say that mitzvah is do not need kavana, do not need intent. And others want to suggest that you do have to have kavana in order to fulfill the mitzvah. Okay, so we pass in this way, that you have to have kavana. If you do not have kavana when fulfilling a mitzvah, you do not fulfill the mitzvah at all. So carries on the Mishnah, bro, and he explains, unfortunately, I'll, I'll, I'll go straight to the English so everyone can follow it there. So Mishnah Brewer says, what does it mean Kavana? It says, there are two different kinds of intent, two kinds of Kavana. What he calls uh, the heart's core to the mitzvah itself and the basic obligation to fulfill the mitzvah to fulfill the command. So I'm, I'm struggling with the English. I'm just going to have to read the Hebrew. One is the intent of the heart. The mitzvah atzma. So two ideas. One, basic kavana, this is not what he calls number two, is that I'm doing a mitzvah of Hashem. What I'm doing is a mitzvah of Hashem. That's it. You don't know anything. I, I don't know anything. I don't know why shaykh lulav or whatever lulav. All I know is by shaykh lulav it's a mitzvah. That's one. It says the first kind of kavana is kavanat alev. Is that you have deep intent within your heart. That you know what you're doing. You know why you're doing it. You have motivation. It says... But kavanata mitzvah shniskar b'zeasiv ain't tuloi klab a kavanata. When you understand when we say mitzvah tzricho kavana, that you have to have kavana, that's referring to not referring to deep intent and motivation and understanding. That he understands everything that's coming out of his mouth. And he doesn't think about anything else while he's doing the mitzvah. For example, during kriyat shema and davening and birkat abazon v'kiddush v'kadomei. Everybody agrees that ideally that's how you should do it. Everyone agrees that ideally you should know what you're doing and why you're doing it and you should be completely focused on the mitzvah and have the intent. But even if you don't, everyone agrees you fulfill the mitzvah. But what people, what the machloket is in the Gomorrah is that do you actually have to have intent before you do a mitzvah, just to know that you're doing a mitzvah. Well, mitzvah, and everyone agrees that ideally you should. Now comes the key verse that I want to quote. Rabbi Elazabeth, uh, I'm not sure, you should always do a mitzvah for the sake of their create of, of the Hashem, for the intent of Hashem, and quotes a verse. Says, I'll separate. Quotes from verse. 
the entire verse is, Lord says, because the people have approached me with its mouth and honored me with its lips, but kept its heart far from me. And its worship of me has been a commandment of men learn by rote. He says, that's the problem. That the ideal is that so many people, so what's this Hashem, so from Yeshua, what's Hashem say? People have, they approach me with their mouth and on me with their lips. They daven. People are davening. Three and minchamari, three times a day. But their heart is far from me. They have become commands of men, learn Baruch. Anshe ish melumada. Otsay mitzvah anashim melumada. People who do mitzvahs by rote. What does mitzvahs by rote mean? It means I'm doing the action without the intent. Okay? The action without the intent. Says Hashem that that's, that's, there's a, a valueless component associated with that. So whereas we have the concept of kavanah, there's this d- demand that we have intent to do mitzvot. We have to do mitzvot. And, but where does kavanah come into the whole concept of mitzvot? So kavanah comes in because it focuses. The whole concept of kavanah, a kivun in Hebrew, means direction. Is that it focuses you in a direction. When you have kavanah to do a mitzvah, is you are focused on the direction that you try. What am I trying to do now? So you stand up on a Friday night with a glass of wine. And you, before you make Kiddush, say something, what are you doing? He says, I'm making Kiddush. He says, why are you making Kiddush? Because what you do on a Friday night. So is that Kavana? No, no Kavana. Even the basic Kavana that is. According to, according to the Gemara, you, you wouldn't have fulfilled the mitzvah. Because you need at least a basic Kavana. What's the basic Kavana? That I'm doing a commandment that Hashem commanded. That this is a command. It might not be the ideal. The ideal is that you know that the Kiddush is a statement that Hashem created the heavens and the earth. And that He worked for six days and rested on the seventh, etc., etc. And I'm coming to... Be like Hashem or to acknowledge Hashem, whatever the case. That's the second kind. Of, that's the more important kind. That's a more uh, desirable kind of kavanah. But you have to understand that before you do it, that I'm fulfilling a mitzvah Hashem. If you don't do that, you haven't even fulfilled a mitzvah Hashem. And so what happens when you don't do that is you do the deed. It is what we call um, form over substance. That people are doing the deeds, but there is no intent whatsoever. And that is what Yeshaya talks about that Hashem detests because people are just doing the actions. There is no, there is no r- relationship. Ultimately, when we look to the Beit HaMikdash, what is the goal of the Beit HaMikdash? It's an opportunity for Bnei Yisrael to build a relationship with Hashem, which is in, t- in fact exactly what mitzvot are. Mitzvot are an opportunity to build a relationship with Hashem. Whenever positive or negative mitzvah, it's saying that what matters to Hashem matters to me. And I want to have that relationship. So, but what I'm going to do? So, I'm going to, I'm going to make kiddush. I'm going to keep Shabbat. I'm going to shake a lula. I'm going to put on tefillin. I'm going to hear the shofar. Whatever I'm going to do, these are all a means to having a relationship with Hashem. They are not the end, and that's where the problem comes in. When the act becomes the end in of itself, that the goal of life is to do mitzvot, and meaning not the goal of life is to do the acts. So, I've put on my tefillin today. I've shaken my lulav today. That's the goal. And I've achieved the goal. So what do we say? Is that you have missed the point completely. All of these acts were merely means to an end. The mitzvah is a means to have a relationship with Hashem. I'll give you a, a, another example of this. The Gemara and, and many uh, throughout Chazal talks about the idea that the avot, that the, uh, the patriarchs and matriarchs uh, kept the entire Torah. So... How do you keep the entire Torah if the Torah wasn't given until Har Sinai? 
So what you know, did Avram put on tefillin. You know, you also have did Avram put on tefillin. Seems like Avram put on tefillin. Did uh, did Yitzchak have a Pesach seder? Seemingly Yitzchak had a Pesach seder, even though he lived a few hundred years before Yitzchak Mitzrayim. So how do you understand something like that? So perhaps you could understand it literally, but the way that some of the commentators want to explain it is that understand that all the mitzvot are, all the Torah is, is a means to having a relationship with Hashem. And if you can have a relationship with Hashem, you're fulfilling the Torah. Now, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, they could facilitate that relationship with Hashem, but they didn't need tefillin. Because whatever we need tefillin for, they could do without tefillin. So they fulfilled the Kola Torah Kula. Even though they didn't do it in the, in the form, they had the content, but they didn't have the form that we have. But what it's showing us is that the tefillin is a means to have a relationship with Hashem that one could not have without tefillin. Shabbat is a relationship. Every mitzvah in the Torah is a means to that relationship. And so are korbanot. The whole concept of a korban, of a sacrifice. So sacrifice in, in English means to give up something. Korban in Hebrew means to come close from the word karov. So korban is a means to come close to Hashem. That is, that is what the whole purpose of the sacrifices were. Korbanot is to be. But what happened, and we read, read, we, read, we read it by Yeshaya, in Amos, in Yermia, and in all the Nevi'im, is that Hashem detests the fact, because what are we doing, is we are coming and doing the act without the relationship at all. There's nothing whatsoever. It has all become a form with no content whatsoever. Everyone's doing the same thing. It's, it's, it's one of the difficult things. If you go to Shul on Yom Kippur, we all dive in it. But who's trying to build a relationship with Hashem? Or shaking lulav, but who's doing it as a as a meaningless act, and who's doing it one as one that's filled with depth and meaning? And the answer is, it's very hard to tell. You know, Hashem knows, and Hashem knows. But we go back to Mishkan Shiloh, and we're, we're going to once again share the uh, screen over here. Look at what was, how, what? Why did we lose the war? So let's go back. Says, Lama nigafu Hashem ayom. Why did Hashem allow us to lose? Nikach aleinu mishilo et Aaron brit Hashem. You know how we lost? We didn't have the Aaron. The Aaron is the reason we lost. The Aaron became, and these are not my words, the Aaron became a Vodazora. Look at the words it says. Why do we, it has nothing. Hashem's not even mentioned. Nothing is mentioned about Hashem. It's not that Hashem wasn't with us. They don't speak to Hashem. They don't ask Hashem, what do we need to do? What do they say is what we need is the ark. The ark is the thing that will save us. The ark became a, a prototype of this idea that you misunderstand the temple. You misunderstand the, 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 the uh, vestments within the temple. And today you miss the idea of what mitzvot are. These are means to having a relationship with Hashem. But when you see them as an end in of himself, the mitzvot become avodah zara. The mitzvot themselves become paganry, become idolatry. Because we forget the connection to Hashem. And you, you see, and why did Shiloh be destroyed? And why were the sons? And look at Eli. What folk, what was, what happened to Eli? It says, V'yishma Eli et kol You try to, what happened? And the guy came and told him that, oh, 30,000 Jews that, 40,000 died yesterday. 30,000. We've lost 70,000 souls in two days. 
And apparently that doesn't bother Eli as much as, not even his son's done. When he mentioned the ark, that's when Eli. What has happened with Eli's daughter-in-law? She was completely distressed. Why? Because the ark was taken. Nothing about the 70,000. It's, what's the ark? It's gold, it's wood, it's tablets. It's nothing compared to Am Yisrael. But when the focus becomes objects or acts of, of, of meaninglessness, but we think that somehow it's a pendant, it's a charm, that if we do this, God will make it. If I do mitzvot, God will make things good. As if a quid pro quo. That these things become lucky charms or they become meaningless acts. That we somehow will be the magical key to open up the key, the, 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 the chest of health, wealth, happiness and health. And that's the problem. And that is, is to, to, you know, to go back to the title. Is those who don't learn from history. Is the, the, every one of the temples, whether it be Shiloh and, and the first and second back to Mikdash, and every subsequent destruction we've had, have all been based on this idea that the things that we were supposed to be using as building that relationship with Hashem have not been that and rather become idols in of themselves. So what do you do? What do we do? So Kavana is incredibly difficult. To have Kavana in davening is, uh, I struggle with it, especially uh, during lockdown, where we can't even, you don't even have minion. And when I have minion, I find I'm, I'm able to focus much better. But when I'm davening at home, I find often it's just a matter of going through the motions. And it, 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 it kills me that it, that it feels that way. But that's the reality. That's, that's my experience. But we have to find times in our day that when we do mitzvot, we stop at least for a second before and say, I'm doing this because it's a tzivu Hashem. I'm doing this because I want to build a relationship with Hashem. And to the, to the point, today the goal is not to fast. That's I mean, we're all fasting and we're all struggling and it's, it's not fun. We're all sitting on small chairs and as of now we can get onto proper chairs and we can start greeting one another. But the reality is, is that that's not the goal. It's the means to the goal, and the goal is having a relationship with Hashem. Realizing that today commemorates a terrible destruction that unfortunately still plagues us today. That so often we, 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 fool, we are fooled by others, and we try to fool others, and more often than not we fool ourselves by thinking as long as we're doing the deeds, we don't need to feel the feelings. And albeit that perhaps kavana is not sufficient, um, it is absolutely crucial and essential. So to that end, I um, hope you have a meaningful rest of fast. It is, uh, you know, it's off the chatzot, so everyone can stand up and get around and get a little bit more cheerful. Um, to that end, um, I've unmuted you, so if anyone would like to say anything, you're welcome to. Stay.